the Young Money Podcast, where Teddy Youngrice interviews young entrepreneurs, hustlers, and innovators to get a first-hand view into the exciting future and the people who will lead us there. Hey, Teddy. How's it going, Sam? Going pretty well. How are you doing? Good, good. Yeah, just uh, I'm in New York now, just kind of enjoying things. Uh, pretty happy that it seems like the country's opening up. Um, but yeah, I'm doing, doing well. How are, are you in uh, Houston right now? Yeah, yeah. Houston and our, <clears throat> our office here. Um, definitely pretty open up here and just working hard at next couple of weeks. And then I'm going to Alaska for about a week. So trying right. to get some people hired before I head off into the remote for, yeah. for, for a week or so. Is that going to be for just for, for work or just for fun? Like a vacation? Oh, no, just, just for fun. Okay. Yeah. Going with my family. Nice. Also, I see you shaved the beard. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, I hadn't shaved in like three years. So it's yeah. just, I just wanted to, you know, make sure I still knew how to do it, I guess. <laughs> nice. Um, awesome, man. Well, yeah, appreciate uh, having you on here. Uh, like I said, it's pretty informal. Um, just thought it'd be a cool way to, you know, chat with my friends and share what they're doing. Um, and definitely wanted to, you know, share your story and learn more also about what you're doing now. Um, but yeah, I guess like for the audience, uh, the, the, the audience of the future, uh, Sam Reed, friend of mine, um, entrepreneur, growth marketer, um, and currently the CEO of Dearman Systems. Um, yeah, thanks again for, for being here. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. Um, cool. And, and I, I guess just to kind of like dive right in, um, love to start like with um, a little bit more about your background. How did you, uh, you know, where'd you go to college or where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to college? And how did you kind of get into startups? Sure. Um, so I grew up in Houston, Texas. So I've kind of come full circle being here. Um, kind of my family's been in energy um, Houston's a big place for that. Um, yep. so I was always kind of around that, um, big baseball player growing up. Um, you know, always wanted to like go to the major leagues, like every kid, um, played in high school, did pretty well for Lamar high school. Um, made some runs going to state, never won it. But then I got recruited by Rhodes college in, uh, Memphis, Tennessee, it's a small liberal arts school to play baseball. And I ended up going there and playing for three years um, and kind of went in thinking I wanted to go to law school. So I was yeah. doing like history and then kind of switched to economics, um, which I did end up graduating with an economics degree. But about halfway through, I picked up computer science as, as a minor and why um, was because after my junior year, I did an internship in, out in the Bay Area, Palo Alto, with a, com a small company called 500 Miles, which kind of was, was a spin out, out of LinkedIn. A couple um, guys who had been like, who had actually sold the company to LinkedIn, integrated it, and then wanted to try to do that again. Yeah. Um, and it, it was, it was a platform, kind of a recruiting platform for high growth startups to recruit young software engineers. Um, I mean, companies like Google, Facebook, they kind of have like a good presence and brand, but yeah, there's especially like three, four years ago, there were so many like SaaS companies popping up, good companies that no one knew about. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they needed a platform to recruit young dev talent, mm -hmm. um, and inform them like, why is it cool to work for, you know, maybe a company like Checker or um, ThoughtSpot, I think was one we worked with. Like when you're in college, you don't think about B2B SaaS. Yeah, yeah. It turns <laughs> out like most tech companies are B2B SaaS or a lot of them. Um, so that was what we did and built some like cool technology for matching and like kind of let the companies recruit. And I was, my job was growth marketing. Um, getting students on the platform. Mm -hmm. um, and it went pretty well. Um, I mean, the company, it sort of plateaued. We had trouble like kind of with the, the, the revenue model, I guess, but there was tons of users and the technology worked and ended up kind of like selling the IP. Um, 
So that was my first thing in, in tech um, and what sort of inspired me to pick up computer science, learn what was going on under the covers. Yeah. Um, and then I actually sort of got obsessed with like the price of higher education, which continues to skyrocket, similar to healthcare. Um, I don't know as much about healthcare, but I learned a lot about higher education, wrote my senior thesis on sort of why is it so expensive and what does that mean for society? Yeah. And then actually with a, someone I grew up with um, who kind of, who went to Princeton, studied computer science there, um, we, we, we started a company pretty ambitious, I would say, called Pareto, which was building applications to try to, we thought, lower the cost of higher education. Um, looking back on it, it, it was a little naive to think, you know, you can solve that with software, but yeah. I don't regret trying because I learned, learned, um, I learned a lot about, you know, business and the pitfalls and, you know, it's hard to do companies. Yeah. And just because you think something is the way it is, the market is the, the ultimate boss. Yeah. So kind of learned a lot about, you know, it's not just your product, but it's your market. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's market team product. Yeah. Um, yeah. They all have to align or else you won't have a business. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was an interesting thing. We actually, you know, we, we got some minor like, you know, VC funding and we did, we made it to the last round of YC interviewed out there in Mountain View and, we ended up just kind of sunsetting that or giving it to the customers we had. And I moved on to Swift type, um, which kind of a, a family friend, Matt Riley ran and I, I wasn't there very long and I was doing growth marketing there. He, he liked that. I it's growth marketing slash product marketing. He liked that. I could understand the actual technology and, and translate that into something that the buyers at, big companies could understand they were trying to go up market. So that was my job and it went really well. And we were, I was helping them sort of get some big deals across the line um, right before they got acquired by Elastic. So I worked for Elastic before it was public for not too long. Um, they kind of wanted to transition the, the Swift type team um, out sort of, but I helped, I helped with the transition over there mm -hmm. and then um, got involved in kind of a, a very different type of, I guess, industry, which is construction. Yeah. Um, and was over, joined a company called Workyard. And part of the biggest reason I joined, well, I really like the founders, you know, shout out to Nick and Alex. They're really smart Australians. They're fun to work for. And I always, you know, I really enjoyed my time there, but um, a big reason I joined was the markets learning I had, which is you really, if you're doing a startup, it might as well be in a very large market because your chances of success are low. So you need yeah. to maximize your efforts by working in a large market, because yeah. if you have 1% of a hundred billion dollar market, it's a lot. If you have 1% of a $5 billion market, it's, it's still a decent amount, but it's not, it's not big. So one construction is a large market Two, my boss from 500 miles had worked for, um, what is it called? Um, they sold to Autodesk plan grid and, um, he had had a good experience in that industry and yeah. they sold for like 900 million to plan grid. I mean, wow. to, to Autodesk. So I, I thought it was a good opportunity. And I joined, I was like, employee number eight. And I, I ran marketing from pre-revenue to, you know, I'm not sure I'm supposed to share the revenues now, but, you know, very <laughs> high, uh, let's call it series B level revenue. Okay. Um, so that was a really good experience. And that's where I'd say I proved my abilities, yeah. um, like in an independent way, um, at, in a very high stakes environment. Um, so it was good and to maybe, and we can go in any direction you want, but a little bit more of what I actually did at Workyard. Yeah. Well, I, we, it started off when I joined as a labor marketplace for construction, where we were matching 
general contractors to subcontractors. So it was B2B, not B2C. Like, yeah. whereas maybe a um, thumbtack is, is B2C, yeah. this is B2B. And it, we had like hundreds of thousands of people of like entities in the platform, but it was hard to get in quote unquote in the money on the matches we made. People would go around us and it was just a difficult business model. But I, I, my job at first was just growing the, the raw number of people participating and that was super successful. But then the business model wasn't, was not super optimal. Um, so we, we, we ended up pivoting that into actually directly staffing workers into our existing marketplace, which was, a, it's a proven business model. And our goal was a bit like, you know, we'll charge less yeah. the industry, but we have, we're using technology, like matching technology and modern technology to make the process more efficient and also more profitable. So yeah. we're making more money, but charging less and it worked really well but it got so big, there wasn't technology for us to manage it. So we had to build our own, hmm. like a la maybe AWS. So that, when I left Workyard towards the end of last year, that had become a bigger business, which is selling the technology for managing workers. Hmm. Um, and so that that's kind of where Workyard is now. And the, that space is, is heating up, like Procore went public, um service titan just raised a monster round yeah um there's some other players in the space on the software front i know katera just like filed for bankruptcy they're more on the modular building front um what does katera do katera is not a software company but more like a modular building company okay. um and so they that company i don't know if they fully failed i know they filed for bankruptcy but it's it's very different than what Workyard does, which which at this point is mostly a pure SaaS company, yeah, which is yeah. a f- usually pretty frothy. And um, so so yeah, it, it it was like a a classic kind of tr- journey of a of a small startup maturing into something that you know is going to be successful. It's a matter of how big as it goes from Series A to B to C. Yeah. And hopefully IPO, you know, fingers crossed. Um, but yeah, I learned a lot there. Um, just driving demand for whatever exact service we were offering. Um, so super high velocity. And, um, I just think that velocity and that sort of high, high growth environment prepared me for my role now. Yeah. Um, which I'm, you know, you mentioned is being CEO of, of Dearman, which is again, another very different industry that I had to learn, which is the energy industry, specifically midstream in like bulk liquid storage. And our company provides terminal automation and enterprise management software to companies in that space around the world. Um, so, you know, basically the fuel supply chain, we're a pretty major player in, in automating some of the processes involved with, with, uh, you know, getting fuel out of, out of, you know, extracting it all the way to getting it into, you know, your powering your home or, or your, your car or whatnot, or, you know, the jets you fly in. Um, so yeah, that's a, you know, kind of high level view of my career so far. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. That's, yeah, I feel like you had quite the journey. You've done a bunch of stuff. Um, it seems like there's almost like a trend of you doing industries that people overlook or like don't think of too much about. Maybe that they're like too complicated or entrenched. I mean, education, good amount of people do education, but it's still not as popular, you know, as like consumer enterprise and then construction and then now, you know, energy storage. So that's have you have you like felt like some lessons? from all those different industries? It's like, has there been some sort of insight that you've seen or, or do you enjoy like finding industries that people maybe overlook or that are maybe outdated and need new tech to innovate? Yeah, I, I think the major trend um, between like education, construction and energy is it's a, the, it's extremely hard to start up in those industries. Yeah. And if you're able to find a distribution channel and product market fit, you will be in business for a very long time. Um, 
yeah. it's you basically by the nature of the industry and just sort of the bureaucratic nature of those industries. Uh, I mean, construction's probably unique because there is small players. Yeah. Energy, even a small player is still pretty big in, yeah. in terms of revenue. Um, but in just headcount. Um, so I'd say I've, I've learned that, which is from a marketer standpoint, interesting. Um, it's more, it's kind of about, it's like enterprise software marketing, which a lot, you know, many, hopefully of your listeners will be familiar with, which is like, yeah. it's, it's kind of branding, it's demand generation, but in a very long-term perspective view, you're not trying to convert the customer today. Yeah. Um, it's like in two years, I'm trying to get you in. And yeah. it takes that long for someone to educate, you know, figure out how this fits in with their goals and, and ultimately buy. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely how these industries work. Um, and I should say Dearman is more of a private equity type of play. Yeah. So it's it, a, another change up on my career where I, I've been doing like actual companies that had been formed in the past few years or yeah. even that year. But with Dearman, it, it's been around since the late eighties. So there's a company that just went public called UiPath. I don't know if you've heard of it, I've, but I've, I've heard they do like audit software automation, right? Yes. So it, it I, from my understanding, it, it may be similar to kind of like enterprise level Selenium bots out of the box that are doing like admin tasks automatically. Yeah. And I think they've been around, it's like founded by some Eastern Europeans. It had been around for a while. Yeah. 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 But they only gained traction over like, you know, IPO level traction over the past, I don't know, five to 10 years. That's crazy. And why I say that is that's kind of what's happening with Dearman in the energy industry. We've had this IOT level, like edge computing style automation offering for a long time. And we've optimized it and it's, you know, modernized it every five, 10 years, but it it wasn't so sought after, but now it is. Um, Why do you think that is? Um. We, we, I mean, some of it is just the maturing of, of the players in the market. And it's it, one thing I, I was, you know, I'm, we're going through our sort of mid-year employee reviews and we've, we've had some, we have some employees who've been doing this for a long time. Uh, that is terminal automation and working in yeah. this space. And they've seen it go from sort of in the U S at least there's a lot of wild West operators, just, you know, I started this, this terminal facility and I, I'm yeah. moving product in a very, you know, singular way it's not a large company company but over time like the assets have been aggregated together into larger entities it starts and, like, uh, like bundling over time yeah and and so the if the gains of technology adoption and actually deploying a decent amount of capital yeah it, um is more worth it in the yeah, yeah. space um i think extraction point like um upstream has always utilize more technology but we don't really play there we're we're this sort of moving towards um the actual end consumer in the supply chain um i think that's part of it part of it's like their their margins are, are getting potentially lowered by um you know the, the basically you know wall street's outlook on on you know non-renewable we yeah. actually at Deerman we, we have a super flexible technology that can be used by any type of bulk liquid, including like wastewater, yeah, yeah. fuels. So from our perspective, we're pretty agnostic to the, to the product and whether it's, you know, carbon-based or not. Um, but I think that could be part of it, sort of pressure from wall street to like improve, you know, be like, well, we, you know, we cut costs with technology. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah. Um, so I, I, it might be that, um, it's an interesting question and we, or I don't exactly know the answer. Yeah. Um, but, and I mean, one, one sort of, I guess, interesting lens on it is the propane market, which we service and we're, we're pretty much the major automation provider to the propane market. Um, and they, you know, Propane companies, like, for example, in Amerigas, they, they've been around for a long time and they just have done it one way. 
And yeah. suddenly over the past few years, they're interested in automating. Is it new and, leadership? And I mean, it, also one, one interesting point you, you, you said, Sam, which I want to touch on is that um, maybe you need, maybe like as industries mature, you just start having companies that monopolize. I've actually thought about this recently, like that maybe monopolies are good in a way, like you still need pressure, but sometimes you need enough money in one industry to have the money to spend on investing in technology. Otherwise, that that those leap changes in technology have to come from the government. If you think about it, like, you know, where you need a lot of money for R&D, where's that going to come from? One big body has a lot of money. It's either like the government, like academic institutions that work with the government or funded by the government, or it's private institutions that get large enough where they can afford that and they have pressure. There may be a monopoly of enough capital, but there's some sort of pressure to keep moving forward. Um, I was just thinking about Facebook the other day of like, why are they investing so much in virtual reality and all that? Um, but, but no, and it, it probably also just like the generational shift of, of maybe these people are just, you know, new leadership, they need to do something cutting costs, but that, that is super, that's super interesting. Yeah. That that's like what you're talking about sort of is the bell labs kind of thing. If you've ever heard of bell labs yeah, and yeah. obviously, you know, they contributed many like inventions to that are just completely widespread now. Yeah. Um, I know things in the realm of computing, especially even like programming languages and just all these things. And there's a book that I read, I forgot the name, but it's about Bell Labs. And it's exactly that, like AT&T was a monopoly and they could fund all this R&D, which ended up very much benefiting society. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sort of, I don't know if Bell Labs still exists, but um, it's, it's kind of that. But I guess to the other... The other thing is like, you know, changing of the guard. That was a good point too. And yeah. I've heard that from different people that, you know, are involved with our company, like the old operators of these companies that, and this was, this is not a direct quote, but a rough quote from, from <laughs> someone. They're like the operators in the field, like they could go and just like, they, he was like, they can smell and know what to do. Like go smell the air in the terminal yeah. and like, all right, do these things. Yeah. But new people, like they're coming up, they're millennials that are running these companies now, like, yeah. you know, 40 year olds, even like they're starting to take over. Yeah. They're like, I, I, I just need the data and I'll know what to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. They're, they're the way that they're used to doing things, regardless of if it's for them, their own self or other industries, or just they're, they're like, I just need data and I can do it. So yeah. our solution gives real time data. Yeah, so yeah. That's probably honestly thinking about it. That's probably the biggest reason. That's cool. And and I and I I, I researched it honestly. Like I, I feel, I think it's really cool chatting with you because like I want to learn learning more about um, the energy storage. And I mean, it's, it's, there's it's pretty cool. There's so many when people think like tech and start, first off, when people think about startups, they think of tech. They think of tech. They think of you know Facebook. They think of enterprise software. They think of Slack. You know whatever. Um, but they really zoom out like entrepreneurship is creating any business look at the different types of business out there there's you know massive industries that people don't think about and to your point around earlier which i liked was like um it's important to find a big market um and there's a lot of massive markets that people overlook and just sometimes there's good reason for it you know pharma or whatever there's you need know, high barrier to entry to get in but there's a lot of them that are that are not and i think people eventually will start to kind of understand that um, but anyway, I guess just to um, clarify, so terminals, when you, when you use that word, I, I have a rough idea of what it is, but could you explain kind of what that is for everybody? Yeah, a terminal is, is um, I mean, everyone's seen one. There, there, tip, there can be range in size drastically, but they're these big tanks, um, which can be shaped differently if it's for LNG, like liquefied natural gas. LPG, like liquefied uh, propane um, and or crude or refined product, but they're, they're tanks for storing bulk liquid. And there can be one tank in a facility or 20. And, and it's um, stationary tanks or they're not, they're not the transportation tanks? No, no. But what you might be referring to is potentially a rail car where there's yeah, yeah, product yeah. being stored in there or a truck or a truck, um, yeah. which those are going to be coming in and out of a terminal. So a terminal okay. is like where custody transfer yeah. occurs. That makes sense. Um, terminal kind of like meaning it's like the end point. Correct. Correct. That's yeah, exactly. 
um, you know, terminal storage facility. Um, that that's it's kind of where you know, it it's almost like it's it's like you just going to like um, one of those storage companies. I don't know the names are like extra space storage, yeah. and you're like, I'm gonna rent this unit or these three units and put my stuff in there, and then I can take it out when I want. Yeah, the same as that, but it's with like you know, petrochemicals. So there's a little more like, <laughs> yeah, 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 do it, but it's the same. It's really the same idea. Yeah. Also, when you, when you were saying propane, I was thinking of like King of the Hill, uh, Hank, the main character, he's like, he's a propane salesman, I think. Yeah. yeah. I mean, those guys make a lot of money actually. <laughs> um, it's a, it's kind of a, still a, a hidden market. Yeah. Well, um, no, super cool. Um, so I guess with, with Deerman, I mean, you, you told me about this a couple months ago. Um, and it's super, you know, super cool to catch up and see how, how much progress you guys are making. But so you're, you're, you're kind of the overarching um, uh, system right now or, or, you know, thing that you're doing is you're trying to do more of a private equity play with Deerman being kind of the first company um, and then moving from there. Or what's your, your thinking around that? Yeah, I guess what you're getting at is like, where, where am I trying to take my career? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's, there is a lot of opportunities out there to take industrial technologies from where they are and, and maybe inject some capital and also just more aggressive marketing and sales into them and grow yeah. them and, and also just, you know, change the guard of, of the talent a bit. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think there's lots of that to be done and there's, comp- there's, you know, institutional investors, family offices that really go after that. Yeah. Um, it could be something I, you know, I'm obviously learning how to do that. So it could be something I'd want to continue to do. Yeah. Um, I think in the, the, you know, the mid short to midterm of my career, I'm just focused on heavily focused on making Deerman successful. Cause yeah. you know, it's important to, you know, all of my investors now and my career as like, whatever I want to do now being successful, what I'm doing now is, I mean, whatever I want to do later, making this successful is sort of the segue in that. And who knows, maybe I'll be here in 10 years still running Gearman. Yeah. Um, And, you know, it's a public company. There's not, I'm not really sure other than I, I like the experience of it. And I do like working with our customers in this industry. Yeah. Um, I consider them, you know, <laughs> during COVID essential businesses and yeah. <laughs> people, people to, you know, there's a lot of flack being thrown towards the you know, oil and gas industry. And, and yeah. I think people don't really realize that, how, you know, how much, where petroleum products are used and, you know, it's, it's like everything, right? I mean, plastics. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, can you can you can you talk more about that? Just like the this industry, oil. I mean, as oil start their petroleum base, but you know, what do people not know about it that would surprise them? Well, I mean, asphalt is a petroleum product. I mean, some people know that. Um, I mean, it, it's it's going into like a lot of our clothing, um, a lot of you know anything plastic. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm not like kind of a, I guess, chemicals expert or um, yeah. kind of consumer goods expert, but it it's, it's far beyond just what's powering your car. That's for sure. Yeah. At the same time, like it's super important for us to keep innovating. Like one day we'll sure. run out of petrochemicals potentially. So it's important to try to push society forward, but yeah. Um, and you know, there's ebbs and flows in politics and how people are thinking about things, but I can tell you like, you know, price of gas is, 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 as everyone knows, it's, it's, it's back where it was. I mean, there was a weird time last year when it was like negative somehow. Right. And, but the, the industry is thriving and I think they're, they're trying to find their place in each company in, in, in not just midstream, but the whole energy um, industry is trying yeah. to find its proper balance of like, let's make a lot of money now. Yeah. And also let's plan for the future and contribute to, you know, not just my kids, but their kids and their kids future. Yeah. I think there is a lot of like genuine thought there and like, well, companies are not just evil. 
Um, yeah. They, they aren't just trying to ruin the environment. You know, it's not they're, like that. They're not so. trying to kill uh, seagulls and... <laughs> No, they're they're just oil, trying to. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel like that's like the, the the quintessential evil oil man, like BP and like you know uh, seagulls or whatever birds, like you know tar. Right, yeah. right, and I guess one interesting lens which some people may think about, for example, if if you're going to drive a Tesla, which you know, great great product, great company, right? But in order for us to even have the the materials to create the battery or the car, they're getting mined, right? And yeah. what, how are you mining that? You're, you're, you're using petrochemicals to, to power those mining vehicles, to sort of power that mining site. How do you even create those vehicles to mine the petrochemicals? How yeah. do you, you know, all the way back, kind of, if you peel back the onion, yeah. you know, if you will, then you realize like it, it's still going to be a huge part of us as we kind of make things renewable. Yeah. Um, so that's cool. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, what, what do you think caused this like big increase or return back to normalcy or like normal prices with oil? Um, yeah. What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I, my, my dad w- would be able to tell you, well, he was like, he trades, he still trades oil and gas, but that's how he kind of started his career. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, a simple reason is like COVID is, is kind of, we're getting a pretty good wrangle on it and people are traveling and sort of going about their normal lives and the world's going back to how it was. So you can predict better. Um, and I guess, you know, we, it's potentially there was a low supply because we were producing less refined product because we were in the short to midterm and especially in the beginning of COVID we are like, how long is this going to last? People are, are sitting around and not using yeah. products. I mean, that's one simple reason. It could be the majority of the reason. Um, part of it could be kind of regulation. Um, with, and, you know, honestly, the strategic direction of governments trying to make it more expensive to force innovation away from it. I don't know. Yeah. Um, it's primarily the first thing I I think, um, which is just more consumption. Um, And there's definitely other reasons. It's it's, the price of oil is like massively complicated. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's OPEC and um, there's so many factors, but those are potentially two things I I think about. Yeah. Um, So I've, I've said this before and like, Feel like a broken record at this point but I, I i like i'm a big fan of history and i always see cycles and things and i've always thought about like the comparison like now and then you know 100 years ago you know you had um you know carnegie rockefeller those are kind of like mark zuckerberg bezos you know sergey larry like basically it's like the infrastructure of like the physical land went online you know railroads or information you can make all these analogies i thought about like what's next and obviously we have like biotech with blockchain and everything, but I've, I've, I've actually made the prediction because um, I mean, I guess it's pretty late. It's later. You have wars and all that. And I don't know how that, how you like, you know, draw apples, apples, but it blew my mind when I was like reading a couple of years ago. I mean, you grew up in, in, in Texas, you know, grew up in, you know, oil energy, you know, that market, but it blew my mind that I was like reading about all these billionaires in like the fifties and sixties. And they were all from oil. And it was like a completely like these names I'd never heard of people I never like knew about. Um, and it's super fascinating to me that just every 10 or 20 years, the, the, the economy changes, the market changes and like where, where the market is value changes and where you have like the, you know, the most, you know, the richest people or, or just like the most, you know, action happening. And so maybe even like you could see right now, as we have all these new technologies that we've created, we're selling hardware, we're, um, we have, you know, more, more people online, more people developing, more people building, you need energy to power those things. So we could be entering like an energy age, obviously a lot of it, a big, a lot of it's like emphasized on, on renewables and all that. But in a way though, it could be that as more and more, like the objective fact is more people being de- like developing, building more, you know, maturing. Um, and there's more technologies that we've created in the past 10, 20 years that people now need that we need to fuel that somehow. So you can maybe even argue that 
we could be entering like another golden era of energy, just like we did, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you know, post the wars and all the new technology we had. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's a really interesting point. Um, I mean, I I think the companies in this space are they're like I was saying earlier, they're they're very happy to service, you know, the energy needs and wants of of all the other industries and consumers um, yeah. as, as well as pushing R&D like we said. I mean, all these major companies like like Chevron and P66 and like they have like research arms, right? Yeah. They're trying to invent things like we were saying way, you know, maybe 20 minutes ago, Hey, we need people innovating and we need these large well-funded bodies who don't have to, who can make big bets kind of how Google did like uh, X labs or whatever. whatever. Yeah. Um, so I, I think hundred percent like the, the energy industry will continue to service innovation as well as try to innovate on yeah. its own. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm excited in terms of industries. I'm excited to see like the American, the American healthcare system is, is kind of an interesting experiment because it's like the biggest mix of capitalism and some mix of socialism, which is necessary yeah. probably in healthcare. Um, how do, and it, it, the costs are kind of starting to get away from us. How do we fix that? And I, I think a lot of it is software and it's hard. It's a hard industry too to break yeah. in. You can't just yeah. start a company in healthcare. Like it doesn't work that way. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, more, uh, I'm more speaking from an administrative software, B2B software type sure. of world that I understand. Yeah. There's also the, the biotech side, the equipment sure. side and all those things. I don't know much about that stuff, but I think that that to me is, will be super interesting. How do we drive down the cost? Maybe there's incentive models and just yeah. auditing software that watches things through the healthcare supply chain or service chain. Um, that that's a, I think an important place for us, like for us to make leaps. Um, yeah. I think the U.S. does a great job on creating new treatments and, and better surgeries. And but what we need to fix is the cost. So I think software could be a huge part of that. And I I know like venture capitalists are funding it like crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, um, I have good friends uh, who founded um, medical you know workflow software. So like pretty familiar. You should have one of my friends on here, hopefully to talk more about it, but yeah, no, I mean, even, even just like the, the, the workflow to make, you know, the, the operators more efficient is one big, huge area, nurses, you know, PAs, doctors, everybody. Right. But then another point that you made, which is actually really, really interesting is the actual like supply chain of medicine, like beyond the hospital. I mean, I mean, I think COVID probably opened our eyes to that, that we don't produce like anything and like, maybe like where the inefficiency and, just applying, like, you probably have way more rigor and analytics on, uh, it's funny, on, um, like, diapers and, like, consumer goods sent through, like, supply chains for Amazon and Shopify than we do for, for healthcare. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm completely off here. But, I mean, I, it seems like uh, that's overlooked, maybe, of, like, just, yeah, improving efficiencies and just and adding more data with that, you know, with with supplies and um, the whole like kind of process. Yeah, no, I, I think that's another big thing. And also there's a podcast I really like called the all in podcast with yeah. like um, some off and those guys. Yeah. Sachs, yeah, yeah. And, and one thing they were talking about, and I've heard them talk about even in, over the past few years is sort of the resiliency of supply chains and sort of, we've been having this thing of like globalization yeah. over the past 20 years, but actually now what's going to happen is resilient systems um, where the U S is going to manufacture everything that they need. Yeah. Like, and though we're going to go back to like, you know, potentially how it was like, you know, pre-industrial revolution. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. There's certain raw goods, raw materials that you just physically don't have in your country, but yeah. everything you can possibly do from a manufacturing standpoint in your country, you will. So that's going to be a big thing that's happening. Yeah. Um, and I know they talked about that and I, I agree. And yes, energy will power that. And honestly, there will be extra energy consumed because all the major countries are going to do that, right? Yeah. So there'll be a lot of redundancies of products in, in industries, but it's more resilient to the global supply chain. Um, I think that's really interesting. 
I mean, you know, China's a whole can of worms, but yeah. you know, where it's kind of a hedge against China in some ways, but also just a hedge against, hey, maybe we optimize too much for efficiency over resiliency. Um, and to a technical analogy, which also applies to Deerman, is the way we deploy our software. So we're kind of a hybrid cloud type of company that's classic in sort of a big Fortune 500 environment, if you will, yeah. um, that optimizes for security and resiliency over efficiency and cost. Um, I mean, you, you play it all in, it's all parameters into the equation of the architecture, but we, um, our systems are like designed for resiliency and they cost more, not like they, we could put it in the cloud and it would be cheaper, but they want it to be sort of a hybrid cloud in their environments. And, and I think it's an analogy towards the way that like the U S is going to be with like consumer goods, healthcare goods, um, it's almost like it's all almost of like, our goods. Yeah. It's like almost like a weighted function where you're now waiting like uh, pretty high or even adding, uh, adding a new parameter, which wasn't there before, which is like the resiliency, like, like, okay, you can make it cheaper, but if you spent a little bit more and there's a 30% chance things could break in this way, like it's worth it. If you like include that element, um, it's almost like, yeah, it's like, I mean, if, if you incorporated like global supply shocks, like with COVID, then I'm sure companies would invest in that more given how much it like it hurt them. I mean, imagine if there was one supply chain company or whatever that um, was prepared because they, they spent more and invested more and it was more expensive, but it paid off in the end because they like, it's almost like insur- it's an insurance policy in a way. Right. I mean, there's, there's like an author, Nassim Nicholas Tlaib. I don't know if you've read his, his books, Black Swan, and he's got like anti-fragile and then also skin in the game. Yeah, I think, and I, I've read those and I, I really like his thought and that like the concept of anti-fragile is like, like small systems are more yeah. resilient than large complicated systems. Um, and so it kind of, and then the problem with large systems is they seem good, but like they have vulnerability against black swan events, which yeah. happen more than people give credit to. Yeah. Um, so all, basically, large systems will fail. Yeah. Inevitably. Yeah. When we don't know tomorrow yeah. or in ten years, but when you build large systems, they will fail. And it, yeah. it, an example is like empires in the course of history. Empires they become so powerful and like they can crush anyone at a given time, but they will fall because they're too complicated, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that it it's all interesting. It's all kind of the same idea of like anti-fragility, resiliency, redundancy, um, redundancy redundancy and modularizing things. So one thing fails, you swap it out with another option that, you know, multiple and it, and it it fits in and, you know, it it works just as well. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That's super cool. No, I, uh, I haven't read those books. I've, I've heard of the author. I've heard of black Swan. I've heard like a lot of my friends, love you know love that author but um yeah definitely check it out um yeah i, I guess uh another just like stark question is like how how what is what has it been like being ceo and operating like a big company you know at at your age um you know being a young person um and how has that been different than also being at a startup too yeah so i think it's 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 trying so at, at, at startups when you're just especially pre-revenue or pre-product market fit, you're you're more of an individual contributor or you're you're very ingrained with your team and communication is just like naturally occurring and yeah. you're really focused on just making things work. And and then then at a and that's been a lot of my career, um, which trains your brain and makes you, I think it's a good continued education and good brain flex, I guess. Um, But, and I still use some of those quote unquote muscles now, but when you're running like in a a company that's been in business for 30 years and will be in business for 30 more, it's more, a little more long-term, a little more soft management, if you will, like thinking about, you know, each employee and the pathway of functions and how functions work together, org charts. I look at them all the time. Um, you know, 
budgeting for years to come. Um, Like, I guess more like MBA style management where it's a lot of planning and um, just kind of not, I wouldn't call it showing face, but just kind of checking the boxes, not just to do them, but it's like, it's kind of a known quantity, right? Where you, you, if you do these things, it's going to work. Yeah. But sometimes people just don't do those things or they don't do them with, with like ambition and in earnest. And so the, the Delta for good versus great or outstanding is like, I throw myself into these not menial tasks, but basic business tasks. That's where you can create value. And I would say one of those tasks, which is not menial and what I've done the biggest of since I've come here is hiring. So when you're running, I mean, every company it's, it's people, right. But especially tech. Right. And so I've hired about 11 people since I've joined. So, um, mostly on the technical front, um, and ranging from electrical engineers to what we call support engineers to just full stack developers. And that is the most important thing in my opinion that I can do. Yeah. Um, that's, that's probably, um, been a lot of my time. Um, I mean, I know even in startups, that's important. That's important for every company. I'd say that's a constant. And I learned about recruiting a lot at Workyard um, and, you know, trying to build a strong brand and attract talent, especially when you're in oil and gas and you're like, well, you know, how do I get the best engineers to work for me? You know, you you just have to work very hard at it and it's it's working out pretty well so far. And uh, we have a really, really good team. And I think the players in our, industry are getting a little afraid i mean i think we're we have like a really skilled team so that that's that's probably i would consider one of them my i spend a lot of time on it and it's super important and also it applies to almost any company um especially any company that's hit product market fit and can start to plan for the future yeah and it's yeah it's like a whole different like challenge like I, I took this class in college and it was all about like um how it, there's different stages of a company and at different stages sometimes you need different types of people i mean this can be the same person and you know they can learn but you need a different mindset like when you're like pre-product market fit it's like being scrappy execution or not even actually like you know just trying things out but then once you do then it's like all about um scaling and i mean a lot of things like planning strategy all those things that yeah we're in the we're definitely in the scaling phase um just you know we're reorging about honestly every so often and just adding people into the organization and and promoting people up to to have more people under them um bringing in managers and yeah it's it's, it's an interesting time and i think i'm excited about it because it's a very translatable skill um, yeah yeah and i mean yeah you can learn it in school sort of but it's just like i think I, i'm happy that i'm i'm learning learning that in the real world i guess yeah that's awesome and and how's it been yeah it's funny going full circle i mean also it's cool that you um pretty early on i mean a text been around but i feel like um, it's been pretty isolated, the Bay area. I feel like the past two years, it's been like startups and tech are becoming, becoming more, becoming more popular, more mainstream. Um, but it's cool that you, you, you went, you went into Silicon Valley and you got into the tech scene pretty early. Um, but how's it been back given that, uh, I know we both left San Francisco, a, a lot to talk about there, but, um, but how's it been being back home in Houston? Um, what is the Houston scene like, honestly, like business and socially? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I grew up here, but I hadn't really lived here since I was 18. Yeah. So like about, you know, 10 ish years ago and, um, you know, showing my, my age. Um, but, um, it socially it's, it's, um, I'd say it's balanced in the sense of maybe from a political standpoint, Um, and also just the activities you do. I mean, it's a large city, um, but there's a lot to offer great food. Um, I mean, meeting new people, but also people I've known since I was 
little like yeah. elementary school so you know that's good to have old friends i think um there's like across from me in my building there's a, a venture capital fund called mercury fund um there's other funds here in houston like yeah. there's one called golden section uh houston ventures there's, there's many um this microsoft's having a bigger presence here uh, i believe um hp yeah. oracle's in austin obviously austin's big on tech but um you know houston traditionally has been energy and um healthcare and it still is and it's a healthcare powerhouse oh, um is it really i didn't, i didn't know houston was big with healthcare that's interesting oh yeah it's really big in healthcare especially like cancer research like md anderson it's definitely it's one of the major cancer treatment and cancer research places in the whole world oh, wow. um that's for sure um and also just other you know good hospitals like methodist and um various others um so that that's a major industry and um a lot of great doctors here. Um, and then, but yeah, in the stuff I, you know, know about, well, you know, like the tech world, it's, it's growing here. Um, yep. you know, the capital that's accumulated from energy and in other industries is, is, is finding is funding companies here, um, and growing that and, and kind of a new economic sector here. You yep. can see it. I think it's happening in a lot of major cities, but I'm excited to see it here. Um, cause you know, I, maybe I'll just be here for the rest of my career. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I saw there was a company, I think it was called like hello Alice or something that got series B it's based here in Houston. It's like an SMB SAS tool. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, I saw that. Um, yeah. And there's, there's various, you know, companies in different yeah. servicing, different sectors, not just energy here. Yeah. Um, so that that's good to see. I, I think it's um, it's thriving and it's a naturally kind of lower cost place because it's less land restricted than a Bay Area or even in Austin. And, there's you know, you can live in the suburbs and yeah. we just have a lot of space, um, which lends itself to lower costs. We have major airports. It's it's going to be an economic powerhouse. I could see it becoming the number one economic powerhouse in the United States over the next 25 years. Um, and maybe Dallas could be, and Houston sort of works in tandem, but the state of Texas is doing well, just like yeah. the state of Florida. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think the business environment, I welcoming to any industry, honestly. Yeah. Um, so I think that is that from a high level is very positive. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely big push towards like, you know, Florida tech, tech. I mean, I've read so many articles about Texas and not just Austin, which kind of gets like the highlight, but the whole state, a lot of people are moving there. Um, but um, yeah, it seems like there's like people predicted this a while ago that eventually like tech in Silicon Valley would, it would, because technology and, and I just like, when you think technology, that just means like pr progress with existing things change, I guess. I don't know. Um, that that would that would leave Silicon Valley and go elsewhere, and eventually every area would have like a Silicon like Silicon Valley and technology is kind of like you know it's almost like electricity. It's, it it supports everything, um, and so every area um, would have its own ecosystem and not be dependent on something far away. Especially when every ecosystem may have special problems or special like opportunities that need local you know, expertise or kind of local, um, resources for, but yeah, no, it, it's pretty cool. I'm definitely curious to see how things like pan out, uh, especially like in a year from now, you know, after COVID and like with remote work, kind of like fully kind of like, you know, mature. Um, that's cool. Yeah. I also have a, I have a friend who will be on here uh, in a month or so who's, uh, from Stanford and he's doing real estate in Houston. I should connect you guys. And I know the real estate market there is like blown up um that just demonstrates population growth and you know other things as well but that's cool 100 percent real estate is is a uh, very hot here right now um, yeah cool awesome well uh i think we covered a ton um appreciate it sam i mean I, uh anything any anything else you'd want to share any other thoughts or maybe advice for other people who are um, maybe trying to get in tech or interested in business or any other like insights you've, you've come across recently. 
Mm. I think, um, well, two things. One, um, Dearman, Dearman's hiring and we're, we're growing and it's a really good career opportunity um, to, you know, I mean, we're, we're Microsoft stack if, if, if anyone wants to, you know, be in that stack from an engineering standpoint, but um, we're, we're hiring for a variety of roles. So that's one thing. <laughs> uh, two, from like a life perspective, hindsight 2020, yeah. I think I, I sometimes wish and think it might be optimal that when you, you go to school, yeah. focus on school, you do, you get good grades, you learn about everything you can. And then you go and you join a stable company where you can continue, you can have a stable paycheck and, and, and learn because you don't know anything when you graduate. So no matter what, a new job is, is going to teach you something and yeah. you stay there for a couple of years. And then at that point, you, you can take risk because you have some, a little money at least, and you, um, you know, you've learned how to have a job, maybe how companies work. Yeah. And then potentially you start a company or you join a high risk, like a, a very early stage startup. And I've seen different VCs have opinions about this. Some are like, well, you're out of school. You, you have no problem. Start a company. And sometimes that works, but I, I don't know the stats on this, but yeah. I think it's probably better to wait. And even maybe, you know, first you do a bigger company, then you go to a slightly smaller yeah. series B, series C, then by the time you're 28, then you maybe start a company, you know, way more. There's so much that goes into it. Yeah. That is beyond the product and your idea that you could just know by working. And then instead of making mistakes that you shouldn't have made, you just get it right the first time. And all you have to worry about is the product, which is hard on its own. Yeah. Um, so maybe just, I wish I wasn't so stubborn about like, oh, I need to innovate. I need to do something new. It's like, yes, but you can be patient and do it at the right time because, yeah. you know, that, and is that right or wrong? I'm, I'm still not sure, but I think that's an interesting lens. And I've heard that opinion before. And I tend to believe more on that side than like just do things side. Um, but I think to each their own, but that's maybe something I've learned, which is, companies are successful because of a reason and they, most of them are run pretty well and you can learn a lot just being involved and honestly just, you know, working hard, but not too hard every day, figuring out who you are and what you want to do and what you want with your life. You don't know when you're 23, you think, you know, but you really don't. Yeah. And every year you, you know more and you have more conviction and you're just a smarter human. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you're just more dangerous if, if you will, like with your, actions and dangerous in a good way. Like you can actually, your chances of success go up. Yeah. Um, that I, I think, I think that's my main thing. Interesting. Yeah. No, I definitely can relate relate to that. Um, I'm pretty stubborn, um, but, but, but yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I guess the one, one question I have though is, uh, is that kind of like a, I agree that number one, uh, first off, like, everything's different. People are different. Situations are different. It's hard, you know, hard to know. But do you think that it's like almost self-selection bias? Like you yourself did that. And now you're, you know, you're successful. Now you're learning a lot. Um, but do you think it's just a mindset? Like the people who are willing to try things out early and maybe make mistakes are the ones who would then would take the risk to even start something or do something new in their late twenties versus like just so yeah, yeah, that's that's a good point. What I'm saying is like you can know you want to do that, but yeah. the optimal way, in my opinion, is to wait. It's like being patient. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like I know I want to get married, but I'm waiting for the right person. Like I don't just need to marry the first person I meet. Like yeah. um it, it's it's like waiting for the right time, yeah, is potentially the best way to get results. Mm. you know, because ultimately when you start a business, you're trying to make money and like make that business successful in a, in a source of employment for yourself and also others. Yeah. And just, that's very hard. Yeah. <laughs> and so the, the more, you know, about life in general, the, I think the better chance you have to make that successful. Yeah, um, It's not that you don't already know you want it. Like that's yeah. great. That will motivate you to be a 
better employee probably at the company you work at. Like you're just going to have this other like ambition beyond, Hey, I'm just trying to learn this. I'm trying to learn this and everything I possibly can, because I know I'm going to have to do this myself someday. Yeah. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, I will add that. Um, yeah, no, I was talking to um, a friend the other day and um, about, especially the VC back path is a very big commitment and um, startups are pretty tough. I think, I think one good happy medium potentially is doing side projects and hustles. And like, especially nowadays, I mean, you could run a Shopify store and learn business yourself and not have like as much risk going a full fledged, you know, startup where you're all in and still have a salary and all. So yeah, I think, I think, I do think that like now, you know, I, I, I was for sure victim of this, but I think I learned a lot uh, through the process, but um, starts are hard. Companies are hard, really hard. Um, but but you can, you learn and everything, but how do you like, yeah, how, how do you hedge your, your bets? How do you learn while you're, how do you do multiple things at once and not fully commit um, and make sure that what the risk you're taking are, are somewhat calculated um, and you have kind of multiple options too. Right, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, well, Sam, thanks again. Uh, it's been great. Um, we'll definitely, definitely chat again soon. Um, yeah, let me know if you're in New York soon or, or whatever, but, um, but yeah, man, it's been great having you on and uh, really, really appreciate it. Yeah, I think you did a great job. I think this will be a, probably a pretty successful little podcast for you. And um, I, I really appreciate you letting me talk and you know i don't know much but i've learned a few things so you know i appreciate you letting me share some of it yeah of course